Thank you for turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to just jump straight in today, if that's okay. And if not, I have the microphone, so we will. I'm Tim. Uh, I am one of the pastoral residents here. Delighted that you are here this morning. And today, I would like to start out by making the claim that God relentlessly pursues sinners. Now, there is, there is an end to that pursuit, death or the coming of Christ, whichever comes first, both swiftly. But God relentlessly pursues sinners. As a follower of Christ, you stake your life on that, that God relentlessly pursues sinners. In fact, it's so important that I would even go so far as to say that if you don't know that God relentlessly pursues sinners, you may not know God or to be more careful. If you are in here today and claim to be a follower of Christ and do not know that God relentlessly pursues sinners, you may not know God as you ought to. You know, the book of Luke was written, one of the purposes, so that those who know God would know God. Those who understand have been pursued by God, Gentile believers mostly, from the context, commentators would say, that those who, do know, who know God should know God as they ought to. That's what the book of Luke opens with. That, they, that, the, that, uh, that, that, that those who were reading would know the things of God and have an orderly account so that they would know that the things that they heard are actually true. And in the book of Luke, we're coming into a section where there has been 18 chapters of God's relentless pursuit of sinners by Jesus Christ and him having a self-proclaimed title, Son of Man. And so today, here's what we're going to learn, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. One of the great theological themes and messages of Luke, that God relentlessly pursues sinners, that he did it through the Son of Man, and that the Son of Man came to seek and to save, to relentlessly pursue the lost. And in the book of Luke, the first 18 chapters, you come to the conclusion by chapter 19 that if you don't know this, you may not know God, or to be more careful, you may not know God as you ought to know him. And we know this is true of other people that we know, correct? That when someone claims to know somebody, yet they don't know anything about them like they ought to, we go, you don't know him or her. A few months into marriage, my wife and I, uh, she, she asked me, you know, hey, can we go to the ballet? And I, she loves the ballet. I think I've told you guys that before. And so, you know, young buck in marriage uh, went to my work buddies, which is always a recipe for disaster, and I uh, said, I don't want to go to the ballet, right? I grew up in a house of all guys, boys. Uh, she grew up, uh, her, she has a half-brother and sister, but, but at, her, at her house, it was just her. And so she had like a purple princess room and like 20,000 pillows and 12 <laughs> bottles of shampoo and like all that. And so we had like one bottle of shampoo that was mostly empty sometimes. And then if we had a pillowcase on our pillow, like we were doing good, right? So just... <laughs> We had a boy house. That's how it works. She, we grew up uh, playing sports, football, wrestling, and she grew up 
doing ballet. And so she had a heart and a passion for ballet long before I ever even knew her. And so she, when she said, Tim, let's go to the ballet, I didn't know what a big deal it was to her about the ballet. Apparently, it's a big deal. And so my work buddy said, here, listen, here's what you got to do. You don't want her to get the power this early in the relationship. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Terrible, right? So anyone who's been married longer than like 12 seconds knows like <laughs> that is terrible advice. And so my buddy said, no, this is my third marriage. Trust me, I've been there. <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. I, you just, you don't want, you know, you don't want him to. And so I thought, okay, that sounds, he's all, a lot of experience, right? Not, not hating on that if that's your, your background, but just like, I don't know, I didn't know any better. And so I went home and, and I said, well, well, what do I do? He said, well, just, you know, tell her you're the man in the house. And, and okay, man of the one bedroom, 600 square foot apartment. Uh, and you're not going to the ballet. And so I went home and I said, you know, baby, we're, we're not going to the ballet. You know, I gave her all the normal reasons. We don't have time. We don't have money. Yada, yada, yada. Well, you have money to go eat out, but you don't have money to take me to the ballet. Okay, well, that's different. I'm the man of the house. We're not going to the ballet. And she said, well, I want to go to the ballet. And I said, well, no, that's it. That's the final say. We're not going to the ballet. I didn't know it was a big deal to her, right? So uh, to make a long night very short, the next day... We're at the ballet, and, <laughs> and I learned that it's very important to my wife. Now, we've all done dumb things, especially early in marriage, and hopefully we get a little better at time. And with time, I've come to learn that when I hear the ballet's coming into town, I pursue my wife and say, Nutcracker's here again. You know, just like, let's go. Let's figure this out. Like, we're... we're like, we're going to the ballet because I know my, my, my wife's heart for that. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. If you were to tell me, oh, I've known Megan for, and I have permission from her to tell this story, by the way. Uh, I've known Megan for years. And I'd say, really? And we started talking. You said, yeah, but she has no love for dance or the ballet. I'd say, do we know the same person, right? Like, do, do, you, do you know my wife? She, of course she does. I, I don't think you know my wife if you would come to the conclusion that that's not a passion of hers. I mean, like, we see this all the time. When we know somebody, we know what they're all about. In fact, I would tell you, if you didn't know my wife, uh, like you ought to, because if you did, you would know she has a passion for the ballet. Because I've, I've seen it, right? I'm coming up on 11 years of marriage. I've seen her passion for this. I watch as this happens. Her eyes light up when something comes on TV or whatever, right? When we go, it's a good thing. She has a passion for the ballet. And in the same way, when we come into the book of Luke, here we go. We have 18 chapters of God's relentless pursuit. We come to the conclusion that God has sent the Son of Man, that the Son of Man has come, that Jesus as God has come to relentlessly pursue sinners, that he's come to seek and to save the lost. And if that is not a passion of those who follow Christ, they may not be following Christ. Or to be more careful, they may not be following Christ as they ought to. Look in the text and you're going to see how this kind of comes out. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse one, and we're going to understand this truth about the Son of Man, that the Son of Man has come. Look at 19 verse 1. He, okay, that's Jesus, the Son of Man, entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, what's such a big deal about the Son of Man, Jesus coming and entering into Jericho? Well, the same truths of why it's such a big deal that the Son of Man, Jesus who is God, would enter into our creation in the first place. 
The Son of Man is a title that kind of served two functions. The first is that when Jesus is identifying, when he is seen, when Luke is writing to show this is the Son of Man, that the Son of Man was the one who was to come and rule in authority over all things in heaven and on earth in creation. This title came from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Write that down, but I'll read it to you. Daniel records, I saw in the night visions, and behold, in the cloud of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So here's what's happening. Ancient of Days is a title for God himself. And one came before God, the Son of Man, and he did this. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. So God himself, this is the one to whom God would give dominion. That's a word for authority and rule. And glory, that's that's the word that means beauty or weight, more valuable than everything, and, uh, and a kingdom. He would give him a place to rule, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So it all becomes his, this son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, Daniel tells us. That is, it will not end, uh, which shall not pass away. There's nothing that can come against it. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. It goes on forever and ever and ever. This son of man has come. He has a rule and authority over all things. And Luke presents, it, presents Jesus to us as this son of man. In fact, the first 18 chapters, Jesus is going all over the place showing that he has authority over demons, that he has authority over sickness, that he has authority over blindness, that he has authority over those who are lame, that he has authority over sin and forgiving, that he has authority over creation, that all things that are are under him because he is the Son of Man and all things are under him. Him. This son of man came into creation, and in creation he came into Jericho. But that's not the only thing the title Son of Man suggests. The Son of Man rules all things, and as the Son of Man, he would suffer so that all who would come to him would be redeemed. I want you to see this. Go to Luke chapter 4. Just flip on over. It's okay. Keep your thumb in Luke 19. Go to Luke chapter 4. It's not going to be on the screen, and so share a Bible next to you or a phone screen or whatever, and uh, and we're going to look at this. I want you to see this. When Jesus comes, just so you know, like, well, maybe that was thrust on him and he didn't actually want it or whatever. There's an idea out there that that happened. Look at what Jesus does in Luke chapter 4. For. To set the context, he has uh, come, he's in his hometown, and he goes to kind of his home church, in a way, and uh, there's a time of teaching, and so he stands up, and he scra- grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and they didn't have chapter and verse back then, they had scrolls, so he would go to what you would see as Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and he begins to read in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's a modern day, or that's an ancient way of the modern day version of dropping the mic, right? Boom, I just, that just happened. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him like, what? Right, continuing on. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, presented as the Son of Man in Luke, rules and reigns over all things. And in that ruling and reigning, he has come that in a unique way as the Son of Man, that those who are blind will now see. Those who are oppressed will now be freed. Those who are in bondage will now taste liberty. That the very Spirit of God has anointed him, has chosen him, has set him apart. That he has come from God as the uh, God. And he has now come so that you and I, all who are listening, this is fulfilled, that they would be rescued in a very unique way by him giving his very life so that those who are in bondage would be freed. And this has been fulfilled. This is what Jesus claims. And so this son of man has entered into Jericho. And when he gets into Jericho, he finds someone who's lost. Like really lost. Like doubly lost. In fact, go back to Luke 19 and you'll see what I mean. We get a profile of the lost person that the son of man has come to seek and to save. Check this out, continuing in verse 2 of Luke chapter 19. And behold, okay, so Luke said, that, that's a word like pay attention to this. This is important. Jesus came into Jericho. The Son of Man came into Jericho. was passing through. Check this out. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, one would assume as the chief tax collector that he's rich, Right? Now, for example, if someone were to introduce themselves to you and they were to say, uh, I am the CEO of some large company that you've heard of, you would probably think, okay, he, he probably doesn't drive a Hyundai, right? Or you'd probably think that, or maybe he does because he's wise with money. Anyway, the point, you get the point. The point is, the point is you would think, okay, he, he probably is well off. There would be no need to say he's the CEO of Microsoft or whatever, and he's rich. Well, well, yeah. I mean, of course, that's assumed. So Luke not only points out that he was a chief tax collector, that he had a key job in his city, but then also that he was rich. Why is this important? Okay, let's put on the lens that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and try to figure out why does God want us to know this about Zacchaeus and Luke 19. Well, if you've been around church long enough or you're reading through the book of Luke, you would understand that tax collectors are equated with the worst of all sinners. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, if you're familiar with our process of church discipline here at College Park, you would understand that the fourth step of church discipline is as a membership, someone who simply does not respond as a member to, the, uh, to a correction from a brother and sister, someone who does not respond to the pleading 
of the, the elders to work with them. Someone who does not respond to the prayers and petitions of the congregation to walk right before the Lord when they have been caught in sin, but they continue in sin. Someone who makes it through those three steps. The fourth one is as a membership, Scripture tells us that we are to vote them out. And in Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says, let them be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile. Because tax collectors were known sinners who had no part in the people of God, who had no natural connection, who had turned their backs on God's people and God himself so that they may make themselves better off in this life. He was a tax collector. He was the worst of sinners. But you find out something really interesting in the Gospels when it comes to tax collectors. Wherever the worst of sinners are, you can find Jesus there. Now let's be clear, there's never a moment where Jesus says, tax collectors, good to go as is. There's never a moment where as a tax collector, Jesus goes, well, you rob people, you throw them in jail for no reason, no big deal, that's your life your lifestyle, that's what you choose. There's never a moment where, where Jesus does that, yet he is with them nonetheless. Jesus had a reputation in Luke of not just being with tax collectors, but of being friends with tax collectors. Huh. Can you imagine being a friend of someone who was so vile as a tax collector? So not only was this guy, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, but he was also rich. Now, why is that important? Well, just look. It's on the same page as in my Bible, but just maybe look over, and we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks. But in, Matt, in Luke 18, verse 18, there's an interaction between Jesus and someone who has much wealth. And Jesus is an anti-wealth. That's not what it's about. But he is against those who would see their possessions as hindering them into, from getting into the kingdom of God. Now, it's easy to know because you have stuff and I have stuff and all of you came in clothed today that we are th those who have means somewhat relative to others, perhaps more or less. But you understand and you've seen in your own life and you've seen in families that those who have much, it's difficult for them to see that they actually have nothing. That those who are rich can only buy what money can buy. And at the end of all of that, they find themselves empty because money can only buy what money can buy, and they seek a lot more than that. And so this rich tax collector, Luke is pointing that out to show us not just that he's a tax collector, a chief tax collector, like really good at being a chief sinner, but he is rich, an impossible case. Someone by whom only God can save. Do you know anybody like that? You might be sitting next to one, or if you were to draw a very small circle around yourself, you might find one. That you would look at their life and go, they have no hope. Their pattern of life shows that they're sinners. They're rich in possessions, but empty of real life. And they might not even know it, right? Look at what this rich tax collector named Zacchaeus does in verse 3. It says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. 
He had heard about this guy named Jesus. He had a reputation in Luke of hanging out with people just like him. And the context and language suggests that he didn't just try once, but what is about to happen, he was trying over and over and over this sinfulness, sinner of all sinners, Zacchaeus. It says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he was not able to. He simply could not. That is in Jericho, this outcast of society, this Perea of society, this one who had no hope at all, the people of God in Jericho, claiming the name of God, were locking arms and not letting him through to Jesus. Let me say that again. Because this is shocking. This is shocking in Luke. That the people of God who were claiming the name of God We're not letting one who had no hope in God through because he was a rich tax collector. On top of that, he could not get through, not just because he was sinful, he was an outcast, but because of how he was. He was different. Look, continuing on in verse 3. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, with our children in the room this morning, this should go well. If not, you're going to hear some terrible singing from me. I'm not a singer. But we all know this song, so brothers and sisters, help a brother out. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Oh, there you go, yeah. More tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Right, okay, let's just stop there for a minute. That was, that was good. Don't worry, Jake's coming back, I promise right? But we understand, we've heard this story before, but he was not only sinful, he was so short, he was born different. He had this problem from the time he was a child, that he was an outcast, not, because of, not just because of his choices, but also because he could not get through the crowd. He was just different, and the people of God would not let him through. Not only was he too different and too sinful, but man, he couldn't get close at all. He was too far away. In fact, he came up with this brilliant idea. I know to get close to Jesus, I'll go further to maybe get a better glimpse. Look at how he continues in verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. He reasoned within himself, I can't get through. They're not letting me in. Maybe, just maybe, if I go further down the road, then maybe, just maybe, I'll have an interaction with this Jesus. That's a sinner. Someone who would come to the conclusion, this is a lost person. I'm a lost person. I'm sinful at the core of who I am because of what I've done. I can't even do right when I try. And even then, I can't get to God no matter how much I work. And even in my life, I've gone further and further, and still I can't see Jesus, so I've tried more and more and more. This is the profile of the lost, and we're going to watch the Son of Man 
come to seek him out and to save him because that is his purpose. Look at what happens with this guy who's lost in Luke chapter 19. It says, and continuing on in verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place. All right, so here we go. Here's what we learned so far. Jesus knew exactly where Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was not a surprise to Jesus. In fact, when he moved from where he was behind the crowd to the tree, and presumably not the only person in the tree with the crowd that had gathered, when he moved from where he was to maybe where he could get closer to Jesus, Jesus knew exactly where he was, and he came to the place where Zacchaeus was. That's not all. Look at how he continues in verse 5. He looked up and said to him. So not only did Jesus know exactly where Zacchaeus was, he knew exactly the spot to find him in. He looked up in the crowd of people. Even if Zacchaeus was the only one in the tree, he looked up and said to him, he knew exactly what he needed to say, and that's not all. Look at what he says. Zacchaeus, in a crowd of people, he knew him by name. He knew what this guy did. He knew what his profession was, Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. This is not the first time that Jesus has been in this area. He knows exactly where Zacchaeus is. He knows his name. And then look at this. He tells him, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Not only did Jesus know where he was, what he needed to hear, who he was, know his name, but he knew exactly his need, and he knew that his need was, was to be with his Savior. So this sinful of all sinful men... This example of a Perea in scripture, a tax collector who had no hope, a rich person that was difficult to reach, this profile of an unbeliever, of a lost person, Jesus came for. And when he found him, we find out that though Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, all along Jesus knew exactly where Zacchaeus was. He didn't just know him, he had memorized him. He knew him top to bottom. That when Zacchaeus ran from outside the crowd to the tree, Jesus came to the place where he was. This is what our God does. He seeks and saves the lost. This is your testimony, brothers and sisters. Did you not know that at one point perhaps you found yourself lost in a desert, a hungry soul, a thirsty soul, and wandering around doing the best you could, not having a city to call your own, yet you cried out to God for help, and he rescued you, and he turned your desert into a river? Did you not know that perhaps your testimony is that you knew the things of God, yet you ignored the things of God? You found yourself shackled in sin, in, imprisoned by your own desires. Yet after a while, the very word of God came to you and healed you. Your chains were broken. Your bonds were broken. Your bars were shattered. And you were set free because the Lord heard your cry. You, lost of all people, God has redeemed. Or perhaps your testimony this morning is that you did not know the things of God. You were raised in a family or in a culture that God's word was not preached. That the name of Jesus was an easy word or often, a word often heard on the lips of those around you. 
And suddenly one day you found yourself broken and hurt. And the word of God came to you by somebody and that somebody told you about God. And in your bondage and in your lostness and in your desires and in your sin, you found freedom in God because the word of the Lord came to you. Maybe that's your testimony. We all have this testimony as followers of Christ. We were lost and the Son of Man found us. And when he found us, we found out we were looking for him and he knew exactly where we were all along. He knows my name. He knows my faults. He knows my failures. He knew exactly what he was getting when he was getting Tim Whitney. And he knew exactly what he was getting when he came for you. That's the Son of Man who has come to seek and to save the lost. So this is where it gets gut check time. Some passages in Scripture are incredible when it comes to joy and encouragement. And there is some of that coming. But the context of Luke 19 in this story is that in the middle of a group of people who claim the name of God, those who have it in their culture, in their background, in Jericho, a very Jewish city. They've gathered together as a crowd, and the one who needs God is blocked out. God goes and finds them. It doesn't stop them. But in this context, we get two responses. This story isn't about Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is just a recipient of God's grace. It's not necessarily about him. But the first response we see of this glorious reception. In fact, look at verse 6. I forgot to read it. He, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. That was Zacchaeus's response. But look at the two responses following this wonderful union of a Savior who seeks the lost. First, we get the response of the crowd. Now, just so you know, so I'm not misreading this, I want you to see what was going on in the context. Leading up to chapter 19, Jesus has interacted with a number of different people on what it looks like to believe in him and follow and not believe in him and not follow. And in those different interactions, he's, we get to learn through the book of Luke what it looks like to follow God. And his heart now becomes ours, or our heart is not his, and we are not his at all. Look over at chapter 19, verse 41. After the, par after the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus tells a parable so that those who have and know these things would know that they are holding a great responsibility with what God has given them in Christ, in their knowledge, in their culture. And then in verse 41, Jesus enters into Jericho, and he says these things. Verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This isn't tears of joy. Look at why he weeps, saying, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus 
concludes kind of his ministry to all of these different areas and then looking at the culmination of what it looks like in Jerusalem that in a week he will be crucified by these people and he looks at them and says, who are claiming to be God's people, you missed it. I was here, I came to bring peace, you missed it. So as we enter into the rest of this, let's look at our response and it's gut check time because we're going to get hit in the gut to figure out, do we know God as we ought to? Do we know God? And is his heart for the lost ours? Look at verse 7. And let's see the crowd's response. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. So what's the first response that we see here? kind of covering it overall, well, says that he grumbled. That they began to complain. That's what grumbling means. If you have children or you're married or you've been a person at all ever, you understand what it is to grumble? It's when someone does something and you don't like it, so you say it loud enough for them to hear, but not so loud that they can understand every word, but enough so that they know what you mean right? Some of you are grumbling right now. I know what you mean, right? This is, you know what it is to grumble. They began to complain. They saw the reception of the lost man of Jesus and the reception of Jesus and the lost man and began to whisper loudly to one another, some of your translations say. What, what is going on here? Like, what is Jesus doing here? What, what is God? That's Zacchaeus. Don't they know his background? Doesn't Jesus understand his history? He's a sinner. He's lost. What is Jesus doing with him? They grumbled. And then just grumble, we get insight into what exactly they're grumbling about. Look at what it says, continuing in verse 8, uh, verse 7, rather. He has gone in to be the guest of a man. What is Jesus doing going into his home? Why is he hanging out with those people? Tax collectors seem to be found in groups throughout the Gospels, so presumably there were others there, but even if it was just the chief of all sinners, the one whose lifestyle would reflect that of an ungodly person, the one who had no hope and was blocked out by the very people of God, they look at and go, why is Jesus going to him? Why is he going to be a guest of that man? There's a lot more culturally going on than you and I can get into today, but let's just say I, they were looking at this and going, why in the world would he go under into his home, into his house? Why would he do that? They didn't just complain. Man, they were critical. Who would hang out with such people? And all of that shows the heart that they had of comparison. Continuing on in verse 7, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. As you're reading through the book of Luke, you find out 
what is, why would they, what do they, what do they think about themselves that is different than Scripture, right? Like, all throughout, in a week, like, these same, presumably, same people from Jericho are going to come to Jerusalem for Passover and kill Jesus. I mean, they've missed it. And in their heart, they're looking at this guy and going, he's a sinner. Why is he spending time with sinners? They've missed who God is. I mean, it's easy to compare. And in this process, they're showing that they've missed it. So Jesus continues. After this response from the crowd, I guess that would be like, you know, if you definitely don't ever want to reach lost people and show that you don't have a heart for God, compare yourselves to them, complain all the time, and be critical of those who reach them. But then Jesus responds. And we see what happens here for this Son of Man who has come to seek and save the lost. Some of it is explicit. Some of it is implied. I'll show you what I mean. Look at Jesus. Look at how Zacchaeus responds in verse 8. So it's not about him, but watch what happens, and then we can make some pretty safe assumptions about what's going on. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, that's key, Behold, Lord. So this man, who was a sinner, in the city, Watch, watches Jesus come in. Jesus seeks him out, and somewhere between the crowd grumbling, him receiving Jesus, he learns that Jesus is Lord. This is a term of authority. This is a term of rule. That, behold, Lord. Okay, pay, God, I want you to see this. Pay attention to this. You are Lord. A title for Jesus. Somewhere along the way, Zacchaeus learned that Jesus rules over all things, that Jesus came to rescue sinners. He's a recipient of the seeking and saving love of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes his Lord. He is restored, and we see this evidenced not just by what he says about God, but also how he changes and surrenders his things for the sake of for love of others. Look at what I mean in continuing in verse 8. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And he had a lot of goods. But the amount of goods that he had doesn't matter. You see the heart change for others that comes from his interaction and relationship with his Lord. Not only does he give away half of his things, he says, if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore for Fold. So just as he was sought out and saved, he now commits to the Lord that those relationships that I have broken, and he had a city full of them, he was going to seek out to restore to the best of his ability. So I don't know the sermon that they heard. Every time that Jesus goes into a house in Luke, he teaches. So it's safe to say that Jesus taught something, and the conclusion is Jesus is Lord, my stuff is his, whatever it takes to restore relationships so that they can see that you are good. This lost guy got found. This one who is a sinner is saved. And as if that wasn't good enough, Look at what Jesus, look at, his, look at his reaction, look at his commentary in verse 9. Jesus said to him, so the, 
the, the language says, he looks at Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to this house since he, okay, so that means he's talking in third person. It's weird if, you know, you're, instead of saying you, I'm, I'm talking in third person to you. So the context suggests there's a group of people around hearing this about Zacchaeus. Jesus publicly declares, today salvation has come to this house. He is saved since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, why is that an important detail? Why would he save that? He went beyond saying he's just saved to because that is, it's a, it's a reason. There's, a, there's a, a, something that caused this. This is a cause. Since, because he is a son of Abraham. Jesus connects this man's salvation back to the very beginning rescue plan of God to redeem all things and all of creation back to himself. He looks at this man who is lost, and this is why verse 10 makes sense, because Jesus said it, but also because for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is my purpose from the beginning of time. I am the one who has been prophesied about. I have come to seek and save the lost. The salvation that is in this house has been my plan all along. He is the son of Abraham. He is the one that I promised would be my people. He is the one that I came to rescue and redeem after they fell. He is the one that I've come for. I've come for people just like this. So what do we do with this? Well, a very quick application. If we're talking about neighboring and reaching our community with the gospel, if you see a man in a tree, share the gospel with them. You know, like every tree guy in Indianapolis this week should hear the gospel. Just call out his name. If, if his name's Zacchaeus, it's like a double win. Anyone named Zacchaeus should hear the gospel this week. If you know any, I don't know any, but there's one I'm sure. But practically, what do we do with this? Well, there's a whole wall of ideas right out those doors when we exit this morning in just a few minutes. But suffice it to say that to reach the lost, we must have a heart for the lost like God does. What is your heart for the lost? When you see those who are in sin acting like sinners, is your initial response to complain? Why are they to critique? Well, if someone would just to compare, ah, I'm better than they are. At least I'm not them. Or is it to seek that they may be saved? Number two, to reach those who are lost, you have to be with those who are lost. The crowd insulated themselves against the lost who needed Jesus. May we not do that. Practically, what does that look like? Get dinner with somebody. Grab a cup of coffee. Find someone who is not like you. Is it going to be awkward? Probably. I don't know. If you and I went to dinner or coffee, it'd be awkward. Trust me. I know me. (laughs) But maybe, just maybe, you could build a relationship with that person. You'd have a time where you get to share with them about the lordship of Jesus Christ. How things don't satisfy. 
Maybe your own story about the, how you came to faith in Christ. Do you know what you, your neighbors, uh, those who are of different religions, those who are of different backgrounds, those who have different cultures, do you, those who have a different idea of lifestyles, do you know what you all have in common? Dinner. All of you. All of you at some point during the not- evening will try to eat food somewhere, most likely. So invite them over, eat dinner together. Whatever it is, how in the world would you reach those that are lost around you? What would that look like? What would it look like to reach the families in your neighborhood? What would it look like to reach your coworkers? What would it look like to live out the heart of God that seeks and saves the lost? And maybe, just maybe, you're in here today, and through the opening of God's word, you have learned that you are where Zacchaeus is, except you've never known Jesus Christ. I want you to know the first step for you at the end of the service, there will be prayer people up front. They'd love to talk with you so that you too can know God and have his heart. But let's commit together that we will walk out of here knowing God's heart for the lost, knowing how we ought not to be, knowing God as he is as we ought to, and being more in love with Jesus and more like him, pursuing, seeking, so that the lost may be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you that our testimony is that of Zacchaeus, for those who know Christ, that we were sinful, that we did not deserve, that we could not get to you, that our greatest attempts were met with failure, but God, we couldn't run further than you could reach. Lord, this morning I pray that you'd help us in our families, in our bubbles we build. God, help us to see beyond that, to reach and save the lost. Give us your heart. God, show us what that looks like in each person in this room, what it might look like to reach the lost around them. And then, God, give them the courage and conviction to do so. God, thank you for a church that equips believers. Lord, for the, those that are going to go visit the wall, for everybody that goes, God, would you just uh, help their heart to know exactly what it is that you would have them do? Lord, help us to walk out of here more in love with Jesus and more like him with a heart for the lost that they may be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.